0: You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So over the last several weeks, as we've been going through our sermon series on the book of James, we have seen that James, throughout his letter... Is calling us to live a life of true faith. And that life of faith will be characterized by a transformed perception. The way that we see the world will be different when we look through the lens of faith. And it will also mean a new way of acting in the world. Our behaviors will be different when we walk in faith. Truly, faith changes Everything. Just going through the book of James, just some of the ways that he applies this, it changes the way that we see and respond to the trials of this world. Faith changes the way we look at poverty and wealth. Faith changes the way we navigate the temptations that we face. And faith changes the way that we understand God. Through faith, we see God as the one who is pure and holy and the giver of good gifts, including the one that James points out to us is the word that he has given into our hearts to transform us into a new creation that we could follow after him in a life of faith. We can't even do that without the gift that he has given us. Faith even changes the way that we look at faith. When we are looking and contemplating what faith means while we're walking with God, we understand that faith is not just some sort of word that we speak. It's not even just what we believe in our minds. Faith is a radical trust in this good God whom James has called us our attention to, a trust that is evident in every single aspect of our lives. It leads us to use our tongues to be a blessing to others instead of a curse to recognize that our words matter because they are spoken in faith and given to God in faith. To understand that we are called to a wisdom that is different than the wisdom of the world that seeks to to puff oneself up, to put oneself up and and put others down, but instead we are called to a wisdom that allows us to walk in humility before God. We have this call to an all-encompassing life of faith. But that leaves in sort of another implicit question as we are called to this life of faith. Since faith is supposed to affect everything that we do, what happens when it doesn't? What happens when we fall short about the desire that we have to live by a life of faith? What happens when we step off of this path that God has so graciously set us upon? If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to James chapter 4, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Here in James chapter 4, verse 1, we see a problem in the community that James is writing to, an area where they are not living by faith. James 4, 1 begins. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And in their quarrels and their disputes as they are fighting, this is exactly the opposite of what we looked at last week. They are displaying the worldly wisdom that James has mentioned, this idea that I can call others to my side, that it's so important that I'm right and I need to to lift myself up and push others down. And this is the way that they are behaving and acting, which is contrary to the life of faith that James has just told them has a different kind of wisdom, that wisdom of humility, that wisdom of walking and trusting God. And simply by asking this question, by confronting and pointing out their sin to them, James is showing the first thing that happens when we, um, that we need to do when we fail to live by a life of faith, which is we need to be called out on it. We need to be honest and open about what our problems are, not try to hide them and pretend like we're a community that has it all together. James doesn't try to hide their sin. In fact, he actually asks them to look deeper, not just at the surface level of what's going wrong in the community. He wants them to dive deeper and consider what's going on with their heart that has led to this problem. There was a duplex that Liz and I lived in at our um, house in Littleton before we bought a house down there, and we... It was a nice little duplex um, in a neighborhood that was pretty close to where I worked. Um, it had some parks nearby. Um, it was a little bit older, uh, so not wasn't updated. Like, it hadn't been flipped, but that just meant that the rent was not exorbitant. Um, so it was a good place for us to live. It was right when Rebecca was a baby. Um, but there was one problem with the house that we never could figure out, um, or at least for a long time we couldn't figure out, which was that the closet in Rebecca's bedroom smelled like fish. <laughs> now... This was an absurd problem to have, and it wasn't always, like, super noticeable. It was always kind of there, but at certain times of year, it felt like it would get worse, like when it was hot outside. And so we were figuring that there was something had been stored in this closet at at some point in the past, some lingering smell. And so we were trying to deal with it by kind of treating the fact that it smells like fish by just being careful about what we put into the closet. We weren't going to put, like, our her grandmother's quilt that might soak up smells. We don't want the grandmother's quilt to to smell like fish. We don't want to put the baby toys in there because we don't really know what perhaps chemical concoction was leaving behind this smell. And um, those of you who may know more about home stewardship than I did at the time may be guessing what was really going on. But we didn't know until the owners of the duplex went to sell it. And they had a home inspection come in, a home inspector come in, and they found an awful mold problem below the house. There was a horrible leak behind the counters in the kitchen that never showed itself beyond the the, the edge of the counters where we could see anything. There was no visible problem. Um, And I found out that wet fiberglass insulation smells like fish. So if you just have that smell in your home and don't know where it's coming from, take a look for a leak. But if we had just kept on treating the problem, the, the symptom, if we'd just kept on treating the smell, kind of stay away from it, keep things out of the closet, we would never would have gotten to the real heart of the problem, which was actually something much bigger, much more dangerous to live with. We had to, they had to like have this massive hole in the back of the kitchen wall and the floor, and we had to be out of the house for um, weeks um, while they did massive repairs to try to take care of this problem. And, you know, they had everything we had was, it was cordoned off in plastic so that they could work on this without destroying our stuff. Um, it was a huge problem, but it just smelled like a kind of annoying occasional smell of fish. Um, and the same thing is true with our sin. If we just address kind of the surface-level symptoms if we just keep on trying to stay away from that part of our life where there's this issue that we have, we're just not going to put anything in that closet of our heart. If we're just going to try to maybe throw an air freshener on it and pretend that it's not that bad, then we're not going to be dealing with the true problem, with the rot that is within, the darkness that is within. But James wants us to go deeper, and he wants the people that he's writing to to go deeper. He says, when they are talking about their quarrels, he says, is not... Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of the God, of God. So they have this problem where they think that it's perhaps just a little problem that we're kind of fighting every once in a while with other people in the church. And James says, no, what you're fundamentally doing is making yourself an enemy of God. Because your desires and your passions are leading you to sin. And it's evidenced here in this problem of fights. But the problem actually goes much deeper. This is how we deal with our sin in a life of faith. We don't try to cover over it. We don't try to hide it. We don't try to minimize it and say, oh, it's really not that big a deal. We don't compare it to others and say, well, I'm not doing that, so I must still be okay. We don't try to pretend like this sin that is within us is is something that it's okay to live with. Because it's not. It's rot that can fundamentally destroy us. And we are fundamentally setting ourselves as an enemy of God when we are desiring the things that he does not wish us to desire. There's this whole class of of sin. People have, throughout the ages, um, philosophers and theologians, have tried to describe kind of what's at the root of sin. And one of the ways that that it has been described, um, particularly by St. Augustine and many who have come after him, is that sin, at the root of sin, is disordered desire. Disordered love. I love the wrong things or I love the right things in the wrong order. I put this above, above God. I put something above God. And we think that sometimes that these disordered desires are just a natural part of life, something that we have to live with. And James says, no, there is a much deeper problem. And it doesn't always come out in quarrels um, with one another. Sometimes the sin problem that we have, the disordered desires that we have, come out with things like a persistent attitude of lust. Maybe even turning to pornography or something else to try to to satiate that. Maybe not anything so explicit. Maybe it's just that our minds keep on seeing how close we can get to the edge without going over. Or sometimes it comes out in the ways that we step onto this treadmill of consumerism that our society is. We buy into the idea that I have to keep on buying stuff in order to be happy. That contentment will come when I have more things. That my value comes in what I own. We have disordered desire that makes us an enemy of God. Maybe it's in our worry. I desire safety and security Not through trusting God, but through being able to control the environment around me. To being able to control what's around me. And and in this desire for safety and security, which in itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but when we put it over and above our relationship with God, when it becomes counter to our trust in Him, it actually makes us an enemy of God. And... If that sounds really severe, this is actually one of the keys for how James is telling us to deal with these problems that we have in our lives. There's no attempt to soften the blow. There's no attempt to make our sin into a smaller problem than it actually is. The sin, the disordered desires in our hearts fundamentally put us At odds with God, we cannot have the ways of the world. We cannot walk in the path that the world has set before us and love God at the same time. It's just not possible. There's no having it both ways. But the answer to this is not just to wallow in guilt and shame. The path that James takes them down is while he's naming the sin and he is naming it um, and, and not pulling any punches in that, he also is pointing them to the path through this. He's pointing us to the path that allows us to move beyond this, uh, this sin that we have and to walk instead in a life of faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And then verse 6, there's this key little phrase in this, in this passage that is so important, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But he gives more grace. The path through, the the way to deal with the fact that we step away from living a life of faith, the way to deal with our sin is not to somehow hide our sin. It's not to diminish our sin. It's not to pretend it's not there or to sort of cover it up. The path is to remember, but he gives more grace. This is how we are able to approach the sin with a life of faith, is that we continue to trust, even in the midst of our struggles with sin, even in the midst of our difficulties of trusting God. We turn our hearts to him and we say, I do trust you. I know that you're good. I know that you are the giver of good gifts. I know that even in naming this, even in naming the difficulty that I'm facing right now, that it is not that you're going to throw me away. I know that it is you that can lead me through this, you that can guide me through this. And this is what James leads us into in this sort of next section of the passage, which has all of these things to do all these imperatives that he's telling people that this is the way that you must behave because you're seeing this, none of which actually deals with trying to stop their sin. None of, none of it deals with trying to like do something else to make up for it. He's not telling them immediately, hey, the first thing you do is go and reconcile with your neighbor. The first thing that you do is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And in this case, Submitting ourselves to God means submitting ourselves and our sin to his judgment. To putting it under the judgment of God, coming before him, and trusting that in his judgment he is righteous, he is good, he desires what is good for us. You see these other words that come along with this, um, these other commands that come near with it. Resist The devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's this call to confession, to repentance, to presenting yourself before God, of weeping over your sin. And sometimes we can't even do that without help. Sometimes we see and we're like, I know that I should feel sorry for this, but honestly, I don't. I know that I should desire you more than I desire this sin, but honestly, I I don't. I keep on going back to the sin, knowing what I'm doing. But this call here is to put ourselves in the presence of the Lord, to humble ourselves with confession and repentance, turning away from our sin and, and bringing our sin and our entire selves before God. This is a path um, that only makes sense when we are walking in faith. Because I think that most of us know, both um, expressly from what's written in the Bible and just intuitively, we sense as we're bringing ourselves and our sin before a holy God, we know that God destroys sin. Sin can't come into the presence of a holy God without being destroyed. And we see that sin as part of us part of who I am, and we carry with it this sense that if I bring this to God, I will be destroyed. So our instinct is to draw back and protect ourselves, to try to guard our hearts, to somehow hold some piece of it back from God so that we can get through this without having to face destruction. the truth is that that instinct is right. If you draw near to God in your sin, He will destroy those sinful parts of you. To draw near to God with your sin means death. And the Bible promises that you will die. That sinful part of you will die. but we're walking in the way of the cross where after death comes resurrection. God's judgment on our sin does not diminish. It doesn't hide from the gravity of sin at all. It names it for what it is and calls us to die so that we might be raised again. The way that James puts that here in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We cannot exalt ourselves. We cannot lift ourselves up. We cannot deal with this problem by just trying a little harder. We cannot clean ourselves up before we come to God. None of that is a path that works. None of that is possible. Instead, like James was telling his disciples, you will have to walk the way that I'm walking. You will have to walk the way of the cross. Do you think you can take this on? you don't know what you're asking for. But we do. We understand and see the way of the cross, and this is what God is calling us to live into. To walk in the way of the cross means that we will die, we will be judged by God, but we will also be raised again because in His infinite mercy, grace is more. The grace is greater. And it's Him who will lift us up and exalt us when we come before him with our entire selves, including that sin, he will be destroyed, the sin will be destroyed, we will be humbled, we will be brought low, but we will be raised up again. We can't squirm our way out of it, we can't go around it, you can't find a different way to God. There's no other path here. There's one way to him, and it means following Jesus to the cross so that we can have resurrection after that. And the good news of the gospel in all of this, the good news that James is is leading us to see, the good news that he's asking us to accept with the promise that grace is more and the promise that we will be humble, but we will also be exalted, is that God loves us so deeply, even as we are sinners. And God's love, unlike ours, He does not turn His love to the things that are lovely, He loves us so that we might be made lovely. So that we can be cleansed from sin, have the rot scooped out, and be made new. In verse 11, James picks up the issue of speech again. They're having these quarrels and they're fighting with one another. And in some ways it's hard to even see because he's gone through this whole digression um, that he's coming back to this issue of how they're speaking to one another. And it feels almost like a non-sequitur in the, in the passage, but he's wrapping things up here. He says, "'Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor?' James doesn't address their behavior until they have been through this path of the cross, until they've been through confession and repentance, until they have humbled themselves so that God might exalt them. And then he says, don't speak evil against one another. And it's rooted in the fact that they have been judged. They are looking at God as the judge, no longer at themselves as the judge. Their ability to come and change their behavior is rooted in the fact that they have received mercy and therefore they can show mercy. Our ability to step off the, the cycle of consumerism, of buying for our pleasure, comes not by just trying to like take it a little bit less and, and sort of change what our, our buying habits. It's not just purely by manipulation of 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 what we're doing. First, we have to confess it as sin, repent, and be humbled. The path away from lust isn't just by only by trying to change what movies we watch or what what, what sites you go to on the internet. That's important to change the behavior, but before you change the behavior even, you've got to confess it as sin, name it as something that makes you an enemy of God, and repent and be humbled so that that part of you can die and God can raise you up. The path of changing our worry in the world is not just to stop worrying. Hint, that doesn't work anyway. I know some of you have probably tried. But it's to confess in our hearts where our worry that we are having comes from a distrust of God, that we're looking for some sort of security out of Him. And we confess and repent and we allow ourselves to be humbled so that that part of us can die and we can be raised with Him. And this isn't just one time a thing that happens in the Christian life. It's not that you're just going to have to walk the way of the cross and go to to being humbled and confession and repentance once. We have to do it over and over and over again. Sometime, much to our great shame sometimes, we have to do it for the same things over and over again. And it's frustrating. It drives me nuts when I have to do that. Like, God, I thought I dealt with this. But there's then more to be discovered in my heart. Ways in which I have still made myself an enemy of God. But the grace is more. The grace is more. The good news is always that the grace is more. Humble yourselves. Confess your sin. Don't diminish it. Repent. Turn away. Weep and lament over your sin. So that as you are humble before God, He may exalt you. That as you go into death, You may be raised up with Christ just as He died on the cross. This is what it means to live a life of faith. It means to walk in the way of the cross. Let's be a people that walk in the way of the cross, not minimizing sin, but confessing, repenting over and over again because we trust that the grace is more. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.ChristOurHopeAnglican.org.